This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The wildfires in Maui were at the top of the headlines for a bit, rightfully so. But there have been other wildfires across North America in recent weeks, in eastern Washington state, across the Northwest Territories of Canada. And right now, as I'm writing this, Louisiana is suffering the state's largest wildfire ever recorded. It's pretty clear that these fires will continue to happen. And so Nick Mott and Justin Engel have co-written a book. It's titled, This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. The book offers practical advice on the personal level, but also explains local policies on fire and why it's important to talk to your neighbors. Because as they explain to here and now Scott Tong, the thing that can help prevent wildfires is actually more fire. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. The deadly wildfires in Maui have sadly made history. They are the deadliest in more than a century. And it has many people thinking about humankind's long relationship with wildfire, how fires begin and spread, how a hotter climate amplifies the risk, and whether we're managing these risks the right way. A lot of these questions are tackled in a new book, This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. We have the two co-authors with us now, journalist Nick Mott and University of Montana Business School professor Justin Angle. Nick, Justin, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You know, we're still learning about the Maui wildfires and their causes, of course. But for people who ask, wait, Maui, are we increasingly seeing wildfires not necessarily where we expect them, Nick? Yes, we are indeed seeing wildfires in new places. But at the same time, it should be important to note that people were aware of wildfire danger in Maui for quite some time, and it just hadn't been communicated well or acted on. So many ecosystems in the U.S., across the country, not just in the West, evolved with wildfire and are prone to wildfire. That's just a relationship that we, through our own intervention as humans, have severed. And as far as interventions, uh, Justin, what are we talking about? We're talking about this long tradition of trying to suppress wildfire that draws back to 1910 in the formative years of the United States Forest Service. There was a large wildfire in our area here in northwest Montana and Idaho and and eastern Washington that burned about three million acres in a couple of days. They called it the big burn, yeah. Exactly. And that set in motion a culture of fire suppression. And it sort of coincided with a period of history where You know, mankind thought that it could bend nature to its will, so it fit in with a cultural sensibility at the time. Even as the Forest Service and fire scientists in general started to understand that actually allowing fire to play a more natural role in the landscape is really important, it's still hard for the agencies in charge of managing fire to um, embrace prescribed burns and so forth. And so the culture of suppression is a hard one to break. 
And Justin, while we have you, tell us a little bit more about the Big Burn. I mean, how, what it was like, you know, according to the reporting and the stories from the day. It was a rapidly moving fire. Some of the same characteristics that you see in disasters like what we've seen in Maui and other big fires, a lot of small fires came together into a giant conflagration and that thing moved fast and met conditions of a dry forest and weather that allowed the fire to burn and spread rapidly. Groups of firefighters were overtaken famously. And one of the other outcomes is that it sent smoke across the country. So a lot of folks that um, were living in cities across the rest of the United States saw or experienced the effects, much like New York City experienced the effects of the Canadian fires. And Nick, as far as the culture of fires or something to necessarily put out instead of thinking about prescribed burns, was that also pervasive in American culture? I mean, a lot of us remember Smokey the Bear, the cartoon version on TV, giving us the PSA, only you can prevent forest fires. Yeah, Smokey the Bear was probably the most famous iteration of this culture of suppression. It was created by the Forest Service. The government deployed not just foresters and and firefighters to put out fire, but they tried to influence the mind of the citizens of the country. So that came in the form of Smokey the Bear. Certain sorts of low-intensity fire persisted in certain parts of the country, especially the South. So the government even deployed psychologists to try to understand why some people kept on burning and thought fire was a good idea. But the government of the time Mm. thought it was sort of backward thinking. Yeah. But I guess, Nick, what have we learned about humans, about nature, living with wildfire over time and how that, I guess, before this intervention, before this government priority of fire suppression came, what was it like? Yeah, so what studies have shown is that indigenous people over millennia have had a deep and intimate relationship with fire, that forests were managed before settlers colonized the country for thousands of years. And that all had to do with fire. And we also know that forests burned relatively low intensity. And in much of the country, they would burn relatively regularly too. So we've had basically a century that severed that relationship, that cut it off, that meant that many forests that would burn, you know, say between every 10 and 30 years, haven't experienced fire in 100. And that means that they're loaded with fuel, ready to burn. And that's creating some, in some places, and I want to be careful and not say all places, some of the Mm -hmm. reasons for these big fires we're seeing today. As the two of you write, the country is now in what's called a fire deficit, you know, creating all of this fuel that can burn, as you describe. Help us understand the case that people are making for more prescribed burns to prevent kind of these large conflagrations, and whether that argument has been making any progress recently. The notion of a fire deficit is tied pretty closely to climate change and the notion that the warmer the temperatures, the more fires we should expect. There's some more complex mechanisms in there, but the basic intuition is pretty straightforward. When we talk about prescribed burns, what we're trying to do is mimic the natural occurrence of periodic wildfire. So as Nick mentioned, a lot of our forests are adapted to experience naturally occurring wildfire between 10 and 30 years. Because we have not allowed that cycle to operate, we can sort of try to jumpstart it or catch up by introducing prescribed burning. And that means a fire that is set under specific conditions with specific objective, trying to imitate the effect of a natural fire. And those are hard to do. 
they require the right conditions. There are a lot of bureaucratic, legal, and cultural constraints to putting more fire on the landscape. There's just a lot of disincentives. Like if you're a land manager and you know that the science is telling you that the right thing to do is introduce fire, there's still a lot of incentives against doing that because if something goes wrong with that fire and there are very rare cases where that's happened, but they tend to generate a lot of news coverage and can cause mm. a lot of problems. Those kind of create some disincentives for taking that risk as a land manager. And so there's some institutional inertia that we need to overcome in order to get more fire on the landscape. Nick, much of the country is certainly thinking about the victims on Maui. Many of them have not even been identified yet. But as far as uh, people who tend to be the victims, uh, you've written that in general, the victims of forest fire in North America are more rural, poor, and less educated, that this is an issue of environmental justice. Can you explain that a little bit? In one sense, when you think about people, especially in the West that live in fire-prone areas, we're talking about what's called the wildland urban interface, or the, what people call the WUI for short. And that's where you know homes and flammable stuff like trees and shrubs and forests intermingle. It's kind of intuitive. A lot of people think in the West, well, that's where wealthy people retire. It's you know mostly wealthy white folks mm. wanting to be out among the trees. And the reality of where fire danger happens is uh, not quite as simple as that. And it's not just who is directly being killed by fire or whose houses are being burnt down. It's also who's impacted by fire. That comes in the form of livelihood. When we talk about maybe ranchers and other producers in the landscape losing livelihood because their fields are burnt over, it could also mean, really importantly, smoke impacts, which are felt the worst by people with pre-existing conditions, by people with exposure to other harmful health issues, and also by folks who are working the land. So the reality of who fire is impacting is a lot more complicated than we initially expect when we just think about, you know, those big houses out in the hills. Uh, finally, Justin, let me ask you, you know, what are a couple things policymakers, individuals need to do to move us toward a more optimistic vision of the future? I appreciate you asking because that was a big objective for us in writing this book is to give people tangible things that they could do to be a part of solutions. And at the individual level, if you live in fire-prone lands, you need to take responsibility for protecting your home and being a good neighbor. And protecting your home can start with some easy things like making sure your gutters are clean and making sure that your roof is clear of debris and you don't have flammable stuff sort of stored under your deck or up against your house. Some basic maintenance stuff can go a long way to protecting your home because a home ignition is most likely, will most likely come from a floating ember that finds a weak spot. And then extend that out to your community. If you have the wherewithal to take on these sorts of projects at your own house, talk to your neighbors about it. If your neighbors don't have the physical capability or the time to do it, maybe pitch in and help out. Create a community awareness around these simple solutions because there is a collective action dimension to managing wildfire at the community level. That's, you know, the individual and community levels. But then if you look up a little more at the policy levels, at the county and city level, we can enact much more zoning and codes and ordinances that can require more wildfire resilient building and retrofitting. And also we need a large investment in fire resilience, like getting the work done. Some of that stuff, like Justin mentioned, cleaning out your gutters, that doesn't cost a lot of money. That costs some time. Maybe you got to get a ladder, stuff like that. But mm -hmm. there are bigger efforts too, 
like replacing your wood roof is a very expensive feat and very important in wildfire resilience. And we need to invest not just in managing forests, but also in getting people living in fire-prone areas the resources necessary to be able to make the changes on their homes and property that can make them safer and more resilient into the future. The book is This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. And the authors are Nick Mott and Justin Angle. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit sattva.com slash NPR and save an additional $200.